this time to you. We pray that you would get the glory here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. Bringing the music. Uh, it is appropriate for us to praise the Lord. His mercy is wonderful. His grace is sufficient. And his truth endures to all generations. If you have your Bibles, please turn into the uh, poetry section of the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at the one who wrote the book of Song, the Song, uh, the one who wrote the book of Proverbs, and the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. So uh, that's, if you're, if you're heading your Bibles, it's going to be on page 700, uh, I think it's 702 uh, in your pew Bibles, uh, 704 actually. The, the section that we'll be looking at is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, before I go any further, I want to bring up the word cloud if we could. Um, you are at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are not afraid of our name. Um, you know, sometimes we think we could put the word Bible in it uh, because when you look at our word cloud, the Bible is central. Uh, we want you to know that every time you come to this church, whoever stands at this pulpit is, is going to be tasked with the, uh, the, the opportunity or the privilege or the call to proclaim the word. We like to call it expository preaching, to expose what's in the text, not to read into it what we want. Uh, that's the danger that so many other churches have bought into where they will let the culture seep in uh, into the message rather than to have the word of God be proclaimed out. Uh, because there's, the words of eternal life are in here, uh, and then they're supposed to get inside of us. Um, so that's the beauty of being a Bible-believing, gospel-driven church. And those other things that are on there about being multi-generational and worship-cherishing and caring and friendly, all of those ought to be a result because we've spent time with Jesus. We've come into his presence to meet with him, and once we've been with him, we should glow. Uh, maybe not as bright as Moses uh, as, as the disciples did when they climbed the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Uh, but we should have a radiance about us because we know the answer. Now, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. This is Solomon as an older man saying, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure and enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, is it mad? Or it is mad. And I, and I said of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart to follow, or to heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, that is the first time you've heard the text. I want to reread it again. Uh, faith comes by hearing the word of God. This is Solomon passing on a bit of wisdom to us. So Solomon says at the beginning of chapter 2, after he's finished up his ex explanation in chapter 1, he said in my heart, come now, and he's thinking inside of his mind, I will test you, my heart, with pleasure and see if you enjoy it, see if I enjoy it. But he says at the end of verse 1, but behold, it was empty, it was vain. Verse 2, I said then of laughter, it is mad, it's maddening. 
And he says, and then I said of pleasure, the question, what good is it? What use is it? So he starts to tell us a little more. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body, how to make life more plausible, meaningful, how to, how to give some encouragement to, to my life. And he says, I wanted to, uh, to make this body kind of supercharged. And so he says, I added wine or alcohol. It could be any substance here. Drugs. I was thinking if Solomon was around today, he might even put fentanyl in there. I, I searched to cheer my body with these, these uh, endorphins or to, to try to get them. And he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. He inserts that. But he says, I, I, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine and how to lay hold on folly. In other words, to try to grasp what it really means, where its place is, so that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. Or as he puts in the plural, for those people that are living under heaven for their little short lifespans. He's really searching. I'm going to read a little bit more of the passages, so please keep your Bibles open, but let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take this interesting passage and give us greater understanding. Help us not to be confused by this wisdom, but to be made wise, even wise unto salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Living a Christian life in the 21st century, you would think uh, would have evolved into an easy thing. My goodness, we have cell phones, we have internet, uh, we have GPS. I mean, you can almost go anywhere now. You can, most of us here have the luxury of even picking which vehicle you're going to go to church in. It's amazing how the pleasures are available to us in this 21st century. And yet being a Christian, it's not as pleasurable. It seems to be getting harder and harder and more difficult and more difficult. In Romans 12, we've mentioned this verse quite a few times. You know what it says. Uh, Paul says to the believers there in the big city, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to present yourself as a living sacrifice without sin. Make sure that living sacrifice, in other words, giving your time to God, uh, your, your talents to God, he says, do it holy or with righteousness. He said, this is what's due. This is reasonable. This is spiritual worship. And he says, don't be conformed to the world. Why does he tell us to not conform to the world? Because we would rather conform. Because if you conform to the world, guess what happens? The world won't give you as hard of, uh, it won't give you the same kind of difficulty. Secular thinkers, even back in, in Solomon's day as well as in our day, are, are not content now for Christianity to coexist. Oh, they have, a, uh, they have a mechanism in their mind that since they're secular thinkers, basically they are godless or atheistic. And so when you put an atheist and, and get them to think about Christianity, they look at Christianity as a religion. And so they lump it in with the rest, and that's where you've seen the bumper sticker coexist. I almost put it on the front of the bulletin, but I was a little afraid that you would think that I'm promoting it. 
No, that's what Solomon as, is showing that secular thinkers do. They, they think that Christianity is just one of many, whether it's the Buddhists, the Muslims, the Moonies, the Mormons, the Satanists, or the humanists. They just think Christianity fits in right with all those religions. And sometimes they think we're kooks, because if you really believe Christianity stuff, then you either look like you're um, mental, or I think they said about C.S. Lewis, you know, that, that you're either a liar or a lunatic, or Jesus is really Lord. But the world thinks of us as liars or lunatics. Popular secularism is pushing hard even now to erase our Christian heritage and the influence that Christians had in our country. We still have a lot of the patriotic things up, uh, you know, emphasizing that we have freedom because the freedom here was built on that, on that foundation in the Declaration which said that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their who? We believe in a God who made us. That's why Bible school is really emphasizing that theme. And it seems odd that, it's, that most children don't even know about the Creator. They know about the theory of evolution that's being taught as a fact. Popular secular, secularism is pushing hard to erase that Christian influence so that the rising generation won't even know about it. If you remember one of the Frenchmen that came over, a historian, uh, de Tocqueville, he wrote and said, America was good, and that's what made America great. But today, the secular thinkers now argue that America was not great because they say America was never good. They were bad to women. They were bad to immoral people. They were bad to the children. They were bad to the non-European immigrants. Uh, they, they were... Yeah, you know the story. They were racist, they were patriarchal, they were insurrectionists. I mean, all those terms that you hear that are being pushed around today, uh, that's what they're saying were the forefathers. And in one way, there's some truth to it. They were, they were unique. They wanted to have a blending where people would become Americans rather than be polarized into all these different pockets and be so divisive. But the attacks upon those who follow Christ are neither new nor unexpected. In Matthew 5, Jesus told us to expect it. He said, blessed are you if you get pushed around, if they badger you, if they treat you ill. Okay, secular people are gonna do that to Christians. You know, and this is, as Solomon said, there was nothing new under the sun. He says, as it was back, even with Abraham, it's going to be with the others. And, and that's why he says, hey, don't be surprised. But today's message is a further explanation of Solomon from his honored position of wisdom. He's now got the uh, Proverbs 20, 29 gray hair. He speaks with the perspective of saying, hey, I'm not a rookie or a novice. I've been around. I've seen a lot of things. And you'll see it in the text today. I want you to know that the book of Ecclesiastes is a piece of art. It is presented as a philosopher's primer. In these 12 chapters, Solomon role plays for his audience. In other words, he's trying to help you to grasp something that most of the time you wouldn't grasp. He takes on the role of a skeptic, of a searcher. And you can see that in chapter 1, where he keeps talking third person until verse 12. I, the preacher... I, the, the word is koheleth, it could be the commentator or as Sinclair Ferguson likes to say, the pundit. Okay, now, 
if you think of it as a preacher, then you're thinking of somebody in a religious ceremony. But really what Solomon is not presenting it as a preacher, he's presenting it as a philosopher. And he's, and he's helping you to understand something that you might not have grasped. He used it to term under the sun. Under the sun. And uh, you can see that even at the beginning, uh, I think it's verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? When you see the, the phrase under the sun, what Solomon is giving us a clue that he's role-playing. He's trying to be like Bryce and Santi up here. You know, none of us believe that Bryce was confused and that he bought tickets. You know that he was acting, he was role-playing. Okay? In, in this particular text, I believe that Solomon in his wisdom is helping, he's playing the role of a skeptic or a pundit. Somebody that is living life under the sun. And when you, when you grasp this and you get it, it's pretty interesting. He explores the doubts and the skepticism and the difficulties of someone who's searching. That's one of the reasons why sometimes it's a little tough to interpret if you don't see it through that grid. Solomon is saying, hey, for the average person that lives on this earth, there's nothing more than to eat, drink, and be merry. You know the rest. For tomorrow we die. If they don't have God, if they don't have a, a relationship with their creator, if they feel that they're just a product of a primordial soup that just evolved, that somehow or other it, it grew this and it got this and it got a heart and it got this and it went upright and then it, then it could learn how to speak language. I mean, it's amazing all the faith that evolutionists have to have. They try to explain it away with millions and billions of years. But when you realize that Solomon is just putting himself wearing the shoes of a skeptic, and he says, hey, for the average person living under the sun, they don't know God. They don't know how they got here. They don't know a lot. Romans 1 says that they are without excuse because there's a sense in which they know that they're not God. But they don't know all this other stuff. Even though the heavens declare it and the glory is seen in the handiwork of God with the, with the mountains and with the, with the seas and with the seashores, I mean, there's amazing things that you can see in creation. But people are still skeptics. If they don't know God, then they don't know God. And so in chapter 2, we are introduced to some interesting things here. Uh, Solomon now is uh, telling us about a new problem. Now, if I start in chapter 2 with the problem, he says, I want to test pleasure out. Okay, he didn't say I want to test a pleasure craft or a pleasure vacation. He ends up bringing up this whole idea about pleasure. But this is the second problem he's addressed. The first problem is seen in chapter 1. And you can read it for yourself. I've mentioned it before. But in, in chapter 1, he says um, that things... Uh, he says the eye is not... Uh, I'm going to go ahead in verse 7. He says the, the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied by seeing, and the ear is never filled with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new. Now, it's really kind of interesting that when you look at chapter 1, there's a sense where things are not fair. They're not right. And uh, as a result of that, you end up having... You end up having 
uh, Solomon try to say, hey, I've tried justice. I've tried fairness. And it, I look around in my life and it's just not fair. Somebody else has a longer life than me. Somebody else is healthier than me. Somebody else has more hair than I have. Somebody else got to go through life without putting glasses on ever. It's just, when you look at life, there is just not an equity. Even though communism and socialism says that everybody's going to get the same, it's all a hoax. You cannot, uh, you cannot say everything is equal, everything is fair. That's chapter one. Then he comes to chapter two, and he brings up this new problem, and this new problem is life is so unfair and, 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 it's, and it's not satisfying, so therefore, I'm going to try plan B, which is I'm going to try out pleasure. This is what we're preaching on today, is the world is trying out pleasure. And so, this problem that the secular person has is even further complicated because they don't even know what pleasure is. How do you know if it's pleasurable? And... Is there so much as a problem of too much pleasure? I mean, I can use the illustration of going to a smorgasbord. Isn't it great to go to one of those restaurants where you can pick whatever you want, it's all prepared for you? And then you get to go back, and then you get to go back, and then you get to go back. You know what I'm talking about. Before long, the food doesn't taste so good anymore. You certainly are not hungry. And when's the next time you're going back to that restaurant? You see, it's interesting that pleasure changes, even though the food was still good. Something about pleasure is affected by us. And so uh, it's, it's, that's why in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure. The, the, uh, the third person, the, 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 the skeptic, the pundit, is now talking to, to us, and he says, I'm going to test you with this, and I want you to see what your conclusion is going to be, too. And that's where we're, we're, um, we're in this. So I'm, there's three points to the sermon, if you're following along. The first one is that the matter of the existence of pleasure. I'm going to be asking, what is it? The second point that I want to deal with is the, um, is the fact that is the capability of pleasure. Does it really deliver what, what you're expecting? Is it capable of bringing good things to pass to satisfy your soul? And the third point that I'm going to end up dealing with and hopefully spending the most time on is the issue of, or the matter of, what is it here for? If pleasure doesn't do what we think it's supposed to do, then as a Christian, are we supposed to discard it? So I want to tackle with these things, and maybe you'll grasp it as we go along, but the matter of existence of pleasure, it's here. The reason I know it's here is because Solomon, even seven or a thousand years before Christ, he says, hey, I tried pleasure. Pleasure has been around. If you really want to go back further, you can see even before Solomon, there was a bunch of other things, other illustrations and stories, whether it is uh, uh, when they were fighting the, before the Battle of Jericho, there was a guy that, that had a pleasure of taking, his name was Achan. He wanted to have a little bit more riches and a little bit more fancy clothes, and so it was his pleasure to go ahead and take what wasn't his. If you go back a little further, you can find all kinds of people always acting on their desire for pleasure including Eve in the garden. Hey, I think I'd like that. 
it would be my pleasure. You could just see her seeing her look at Satan and say, that's a good idea. I'll try that fruit. I'd like to be like God. I'd like to be more like God. Uh, now, this whole idea of understanding the meaning or the concept of pleasure. Uh, first, I want to tell you about the words that Solomon uses. Uh, then we'll look at the list, the listing that he gives. And uh, third, then I'm going to show you what it's linked to in your being. Okay, the first aspect of it is the words. Um, the word pleasure is used several times in our three verses and all the way down in verse 9 and 10. Um, he says, I'm going to read verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2. So I became great and surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem. In other words, my pleasure tank was filled. And he says, also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure. You know, now, when you, when you think about that for a moment... This pleasure uh, journey, this pleasure experience, is, sounds kind of appealing. The first thing I mention is the two words that you find, I think, in chapter 2. And uh, he says in, um, in verse 2, I said of laughter and I said of pleasure. These two words seem to be used as synonyms, but they're not. When you understand that the difference between laughter and, the, and pleasure, the Hebrew words are not synonymous. Uh, laughter really means a kind of orgy, while, um, while pleasure, the second word, is more of a sense of refinement and aesthetics. So if I could put it to you in, in, in modern English for us, uh, basically laughter is when you lose your inhibitions, when you just get in line and you let it go. You know, oftentimes, if you're laughing, you have a hard time stopping it uh, because you're just caught up in it, okay? Uh, whereas when it comes down to some of this pleasure, Solomon, in his wisdom, and mind you, he just built one of the beautiful, uh, one of the greatest buildings in the past, the, the Solomon's Temple. Uh, there was some great piece of architecture that he had put in. Solomon understood what beauty was. And that's why Jesus in Matthew ends up saying, even in Solomon, with all of his glory, with all of the things that Solomon could put together, he said, just look at one of the lilies of the field. It doesn't do any work. It doesn't do any thinking. And it's more beautiful than Solomon. So you can get a, an idea here that there is a distinction here, but it's a broad spectrum. When, when Solomon is playing the pundit and he's talking to the people and he says, look, you skeptics, you can try pleasure in the full spectrum of it. You can lose yourself in it. <laughs> or you can be just caught up with the amazement of all the design and beauty. He says, you should try, try pleasure since, since justice didn't work for you. And that's really what we find out. Now, he explains this listing. So if you listen to the uh, chapter 2, he said... Um, uh, in this particular thing, I think I had it in my old, in my old text, um, that, that when you read chapter 2, and I'm going to now read, you're going to hear all the things that he got involved with. And he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He said in verse 2, I said of laughter, it's man and of pleasure. What's its use? Because I searched with my whole heart how to cheer my body. In other words, how to try to make my body feel satisfied. And I wanted to hang on to this folly. I wanted to grasp it so I could understand it and see how it fits in for all the people that live under heaven. 
the children of men that eat, drink, and try to be merry. He said in verse 4 through following, these are the other things he added. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks. He said, I made all these fruit, fruit uh, trees uh, in, in, the, uh, in the orchards. I made myself pools from which to water. In other words, he created a, a watering system, which is pretty amazing. Verse 7, I bought uh, people to work for me. Um, and he said they were even, so many of them, that they were even second generation in my household. He said, I had all kinds of possessions. I had herds and flocks. I said, uh, verse 8, I even had a lot of money. I had more than the banks. He said, um, and he said, I even uh, put together uh, theater. He said, I had singers and I had dancers. Uh, they, they were concubines. He says, uh, and this was the delight of the people around me. I got it all. And if you hadn't figured that out, that's when he says, I surpassed what everybody else had done before me, verse 9. And he said, but it was empty. He said at the end of verse 20, he says, um, and whatever... Excuse me, uh, as, as he goes on there in verse 9, it surpassed all that was in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained. So he said, I didn't lose the balance within my mind. I could see through things. He said, whatever my eyelids, my eyes desired, I just went ahead and said, let's just do it. It's almost like he helped write the Nike commercial. He said, my heart was seeking pleasure. And it finally found a little pleasure in this in this adventure of trying to figure out if pleasure would work. Then I considered all of it, verse 11, all that my hands had done, all the toil that I had expended, all the thoughts, every bit of time. And he said, it was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained during this life under the sun. Whew. You just realize how sad it all is when, when they can't find this enjoyment Okay, now, having laid that foundation down, the list that he is trying to say is that enjoyment can be coming in the form of just the pleasure of doing what you want to do. He includes the pleasure of sex in chapter 3. He includes the pleasure of alcohol, and I imply drugs with it. Uh, so he ends up saying there's a lot of things that you could experience. But the, but the third thing about this is about the heart, how it connects to us. Why would you even want to try drugs? I asked at the beach today, do any of you want to tell me why someone would want to put some kind of drug into their body? I said, I really don't know what it's like. You know, to try to take any of those things you're supposed to breathe in your nose. I've seen it on TV, I guess. But I don't know. What is the pleasure in it? And so it's linked to one's heart. I showed you in verse 3 that the heart is the one that was driving this. This is chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, I'll read it again for you because you can see that, that, that Solomon is saying the heart is a valuable thing. What does a man gain by all the toils under the sun? Okay, and, and it all seems vanity, but he speaks to his heart over and over and over again. And I'm talking about in chapter uh, 3, chapter 2, verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body. So you can see at the end of verse 3, my heart still was guiding me, but his heart is trying to hang on. What is his heart? It's his passions. Uh, when we work with children, uh, my wife and I had special training with Child Evangelism Fellowship, and we used to try to share the gospel with the kids and talk about their sinful one-two. 
And it was a polite way of saying, hey, everybody wants to do something. Okay? And I think kids all want to do something. They, either, they, they usually want what you don't want to give them. You know, it was really an experience when we had little Charlie, my 11-month-old granddaughter, on the airplane uh, for a five-hour flight, changing three time zones. Uh, she was a little confused whether she was supposed to sleep or not. She wanted to stay awake, I think, but we all wanted something else. Now, when you, when you look at this, the matter of the heart, his heart pursued it. Pleasure is something that God didn't have to force you to pursue. It's something that you want to pursue because God gave it to you as a part of your being. When you were created in the Imago Deo, in the image of God, he made you with a desire for pleasure. And that's why it wasn't so hard for Solomon when he lost the compass of, of, of fairness and justice. And he moved to say, well, at least if we're a secular pundit, maybe we can try pleasure out and that'll be the meaning of life. So now I lead you to that second point. We've talked about pleasure. It exists. But what can pleasure deliver? What's its capacity? Can pleasure fully satisfy a soul under the sun? Can a heart truly be fun? Uh, can, it be, can it feel happy? Can it feel that laughter, that enjoyment? So this is an interesting thing because how do secular people even know what is good and what isn't? Because if there is no God, then, then who determines what's right and what's wrong? If there is no right and wrong, then what is pleasure? Is it just something that you determine? I mean, those of you that are married, do you enjoy the same thing that your spouse enjoys? <laughs> I see a couple of heads shaking no. <laughs> That's a little dangerous. Maybe I should ask that question. Okay, uh, we find pleasure in different things. Some people find pleasure in quietness. And some people find pleasure in adventure. You know, with four kids, I can tell you which ones love to go on the thrill rides at the amusement parks and which ones don't. We, we are at a quandary in the secular world to even agree on what is pleasure, what is satisfying. So it's part of that dilemma that he brings out. But what can pleasure deliver? Um, when, when he says, well, it's all vanity, I want to take you to chapter... Uh, 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained during my lifetime. You see, this is kind of an interesting thought about how, how this, um, this wisdom tr begins to expose the emptiness of the cup of pleasure. Oh, you could say that pleasure... Solomon is not saying that pleasure is totally uh, unsatisfying. What he's saying is, is from the helicopter view of faith, you can't have pleasure fully satisfy you. It's like I was on vacation, and we went where the high temperature this past week was 61. All week long, the hottest temperature was 61. And uh, it was pretty amazing. When we went fishing and I caught a salmon... Um, the guy was like, you didn't have to have ice in your ice chest. You just take some water from the ocean and just splash it over them. It's that cold. But the pleasure of the beauty, 
of seeing the killer whales and the, and this, and the uh, humpbacks that are spouting off and the eagles and the bald eagles flying over top. There is pleasure in it. But after you've seen 25 bald eagles, it doesn't have the same effect. You start looking and make sure they don't do any droppings. Even though it's amazing to see their huge wingspan and how they just glide. What is pleasure? And does pleasure really satisfy? Solomon seems to imply here that pleasure does have a temporary fix to it. It, it gives you a rush. And, uh, and the implication there is, is that after one, two, three, four, five times, it is really fascinating. But something happens on number six and seven and eight. And you don't get the thrill anymore. You don't get the satisfaction. And so if you want to still have that pleasure, what happens next is you have to up the ante. You have to try more. If it's alcohol, you have to take more. If it's pornography, you have to take in more. And, and next thing you know, instead of it being a pleasure, it becomes a taskmaster. And you're addicted. And now you don't even know why you do it. But you have to. You see, pleasure does not bring about the satisfaction of what the skeptic is looking for. But the world tries it. Why do people come to 97 degrees in July to Rehoboth? They just come because they want to throw money out of their wallets? They want to throw it at us? Why do they come? They're seeking a measure of pleasure. And they think they'll find it. We think we'll find it too. Pleasure does not bring about the satisfaction. Now, there was a story that Tim Keller once told. He was a professor of mine. I was reading one of his sermons, and he talked about a movie that was back in the 80s. There was a boy who, uh, who ends up uh, seeing some things. I don't know if it was with a binocular. The implication was that he went to school, and he heard about... Uh, a teacher that was talking about the end of times, that the universe was expanding and it's getting bigger and bigger and there's going to be some kind of a burning or an explosion that's going to come. And so he goes home to his parents and his parents are trying to console him and, and just try to chill him out. It almost sounds like Henny Penny. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. But Henny Penny didn't have parents. Everybody tries to console this kid. They take him to counselors, and they take him here and everywhere. And nobody can settle this kid down because he's realizing that the, the universe is going to explode. And so you know the counsel they finally gave him? Pleasure. Why don't you just have some fun? Go have sex with somebody. Go out and eat what you want. Go have a party all night. That's weird. It was in a movie in, in the 1980s. But it's still true today. There's nothing new under the sun. A lot of times when you're feeling despair and you feel like you're directionless, you end up starting to think about, well, let me distract myself with pleasure. Then I don't have to worry about it. The truth is, is that the capacity of pleasure will never satisfy you. If pleasure is the end, it will leave you empty. Now, the third point of the sermon is not to have, be a downer forever. 
Yes, there is pleasure and you can try it and you'll find that it does give you a little bit of satisfaction. But point two, this satisfaction is never going to, to, to be to solve the skeptic's problem. The skeptic is looking for meaning and purpose in life and they can't even agree on what is fun in the first place. So then the question comes out is, so what is the purpose of pleasure? Well, I have to tell you first off is that pleasure is not sin. There is a tendency, tendency in Christianity for us to wipe out pleasure as if it is bad. Okay, but think about this for a moment. I mentioned it at the beach service, so I'll ask you, uh, who was the first person to demonstrate pleasure? It wasn't Solomon. And I can tell you it was even before Adam and Eve. Okay, it was God himself. And the Bible tells us over and over that he takes pleasure in doing certain things. It's really amazing. In fact, in, in, in Zephaniah chapter 3, it says that he delights over us with singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands, but God himself is in the mood of delight when he looks at his children and he sees what he's accomplishing through them. It is something that he enjoys. Paul, in chapter 1, in the first verses of Ephesians, he says that according to the good pleasure of God's will, God had purposed that even before he made the earth, before he made the heavens and the earth, he had purposed that Jesus would be the Lamb of God slain. Isn't that amazing? It was because of the good pleasure of the Father that he would bring about a great salvation. So what is the purpose of pleasure? The more you realize that in this world, pleasure is not going to satisfy you, there's a sense in which he says at the end of chapter 1, he says, boy, with all this wisdom, it just feels like, it, there's a verse 18, uh, if you increase with this knowledge, you'll increase with sorrow. Instead of being happier, instead of being more satisfied, you end up feeling super empty. So, instead of encouraging people to, to just explore pleasure as a distraction, he ends up saying that pleasure is something that really we should embrace. And the way that I'll explain it to you is, is seen um, when he says that true aesthetic pleasure is being able to listen to Beethoven's Fifth or some other great musician or some orchestration. And when you look at it, you say, wow. You see, we stood at the beach today, and if you had been there early in the morning and the sun was coming up, you might have just said, wow. In Psalm 19, it says there's no people group. There's no place where language is spoken where people don't realize, wow, the sun comes up and then it goes down. And then the next day, it comes up and goes down. There is no people group where this language is not even spoken. And people should be amazed. The heavens declare God's glory. It's pleasurable. But Solomon, as a skeptic, is telling us the sad thing is that people... Don't see the beauty in pleasure because they still don't see God. And he gives us a couple of simple illustrations in there. Uh, if you go to Ecclesiastes 3.16, I see the gospel here just like I do from John 3.16. John 3.16 is an easy verse that says, For God so loved the world. God took pleasure. His heart was mo moved to be able to do something about the condition here on this earth. And he sent Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, he sent him. 
made of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. It's beautiful, but in, in, in Ecclesiastes 3.16, Solomon is bringing this point to a head. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter under heaven. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are like, like animals, like mere beasts. Now, let me explain this. I see the gospel in verse 16, and you may not have seen it there before. In verse 16, uh, he says, I saw under the sun, that phrase says, okay, I'm a pundit, I'm an earth dweller. I'm looking at it through a skeptic's eyes, through a secular humanist. And so he says, as a secular person, he says, uh, I saw in the place of justice something that I didn't expect. I saw wickedness. Now, I ask this question, where is the place of justice? In today's world, uh, you know, because we're all talking about this Roe versus Wade decision, and that was made in the courtroom in Washington at the Supreme Court building. Of course, now they have fences around it because that place of justice for a lot of people feels like it's injustice, you know, because everything feels unfair, chapter one of Ecclesiastes. But the place of justice, well, in today's world, it's in the court of public opinion. Every one of you, even me, we think this is right and we think this is wrong. How do we know? Well, it's the court of justice in our heart. We try to figure things out when we lean on our own understanding. By the way, that will lead you to a lot of bad verdicts. Okay? But the point here in, in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 3.16, in the place of justice there was something called injustice or there was wickedness. I want to be able to help you to see something, that God is the ultimate judge. And where did he exact justice? At the cross of Calvary. And if you follow with me, Solomon as a skeptic is acting as if, if he was standing there when Jesus was put on the cross, he was saying, in the place of justice where you were supposed to get what you deserve, which is what justice is, Instead, there was wickedness. It's almost like he's making you do a double take. Think through this with me. And so the second part of, of uh, Ecclesiastes 3.16, he says, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, instead of righteousness, there was wickedness. He says this wickedness shows up again. When you're supposed to have justice and you have righteousness, instead I find wickedness and I find wickedness. I believe Solomon is giving us a message of hope. He says the world is so confused, they can't see justice and they can't see the, the, the beauty of pleasure and they can't see the cross of Calvary either. When you look at the cross, according to Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolish. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. In chapter 2, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, the natural person, the secular mind, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. We, they can't discern it. They can't figure it out. And so when you look at the place of justice, 
and you see the wicked one. This takes me back to our brother's sermon last week from Isaiah 53. In the first stanza, that he was pleased with his son to come and make it right. And then when you realize in one of the subsequent stanzas, the, the messenger ends up singing, and he says, he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. You see, it was our wickedness that was laid on the righteous one at the place of judgment. And that's what's so interesting, is that it pleased the Father to bring this punishment on the Son. You see, that's where the pleasure is fully understood in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I bring this to a conclusion, I had a few questions to ask. And these questions, I wanted to read them. Secular thinkers will never get it. People that are living under the sun, who are eating, drinking, and being merry because they think that there's no tomorrow, that there's nothing after life. That means they don't believe in the spiritual realm and they don't believe in God and they don't believe in heaven. And that's why John Lennon sings it to so many people. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you do. Because that's what the secular mind does. Secular thinkers cannot even answer why pain or why pleasure. Because if there is no God, then why not suffer pain and injustice? Because there's no right and wrong. So how can you say that it's even wrong for you to suffer? And if there's no God, then why not pursue whatever seems possible to you? There is no boundaries. You just do whatever you do. People of faith see so much more. We see the beauty of the gospel. We see that God takes pleasure in us. We see the value of life. A life on this, on this planet under the sun that is devoted to him. Present your bodies as a sacrifice that's alive, holy and acceptable to him. So we take up this great commission that we all had on our lips a few moments. We have meaning. It's not just eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy the summer, sow your wild oats. No. What really matters is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God takes care of the rest. He can give you some moments of utter pleasure. Like Tracy and I being able to look at our four grown kids in Alaska. And we were all worshiping in church last week. It was beautiful. It's neat to see the people of God coming together and prioritizing the time with Jesus in worship rather than forsaking all the other stuff that's available to you. I mean, it is a beautiful thing when God's people love the Lord, take pleasure in him. I'm going to close in prayer and the musicians can come on up, but I want to just encourage you. Pleasure is not evil, but pleasure in itself is. But doing the things that God has provided for us is our delight. It's a privilege as the people of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's someone here today that understands that they've been on the pursuit of, of not a privilege, but a pleasure, they've tried it 
just like Solomon said, he, he gave his heart to do everything that was under the sun. He tried this, that, and everything, whether it was music, whether it was sex, whether it was dancing, whether it was drugs, whether it was alcohol. And he realized that the only satisfaction is when you are forgiven, when you have a relationship with your Savior, when you can see the beauty of Jesus dying, not because he deserved it, but because he loved us, because greater love couldn't be shown that he would willingly take our place. Lord, I pray that if someone's believed that today, that they would make it known to us after the service, that they would come and share the good news, that they are resting in what Christ has already done, and they're taking great delight in not having to work for their salvation because they never could. It's not by works, lest any of us would boast. It's only by grace through faith so that God receives the glory in Jesus' name.